Heavenly Father, from the beginning of creation, you purpose to glorify yourself through man. You purpose to cover the earth with those created in your image that would bring you honor and glory both now and into eternity. It was your purpose to make a people and a place for your dwelling that you might be our God and we your people now and forever. You accomplished this great work, Father, through the saving work of Jesus Christ, saving many out of judgment through the cross that we might worship and adore Him now and forever. In Exodus, you made your glory known by revealing your power and your majesty to Pharaoh. You made your glory known by drawing your people out of slavery and into your community. We ask, Lord, that you'd be gracious with us this morning and that you would make yourself known through this study in Exodus. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would show the great gospel of Jesus Christ revealed so many centuries ago to a people so far away that we might see the same gospel message has been saving people for all time. We ask that you would use this study to transform Cambrian Park Baptist Church, that we might be a people that are fruitful and multiply and fill this city with disciples of Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us above all else with your presence, for we desire that more than anything, that we might know you, that we might experience your grace and your mercy and your love. You are still judging this day. You are still saving many this day. And you are still making a people for your glory through your people. So I ask that you would equip us this morning with the knowledge of who you are and the great love of Christ so that we might live as the people that you have saved us to be, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart for your glory. We ask that you would do that through this beautiful little church, Lord, that we might have the right impact on this community that you have so decreed before the foundations of the world. And we ask all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please open to Exodus. If you don't know where Exodus is, go to the very beginning of Genesis, and it is the next book. So um, not too hard for us to find. I know that as a, uh, as a pastor preaching in 2019, I should have something really nifty and neat about the Super Bowl. I don't. Um, and I tried to bring something into this, and everything I did I didn't like at all. Um, my mind has been captivated by a super savior this week, and so I can tell you honestly I haven't thought about the Super Bowl. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. I pray that this time, though, your focus would not be on something this afternoon, but what Christ is doing right now in your hearts. Amen? Okay, so that's my intro with the Super Bowl. All right. Uh, let's, I, I want to begin, um, and I want to I dive in immediately. It is a daunting thing to approach Exodus. Um, and, I, and, and for the last three weeks, I've been studying and praying and reading. My, my flesh kept saying, you can't preach this. It's too big. It is beyond you. And it is too big for me. But it's not beyond the Holy Spirit. And so God can use a sinner like me and, and, and someone that cannot communicate well, and he can glorify himself. So that's our goal, is that the Holy Spirit would do a mighty work through this book and bless, bless us immeasurably. 
Um, He has already blessed me in my early studies, and I pray for the next several weeks he will. The book of Exodus, as you know, is is full of some extraordinary stories. They are epic in nature. Um, They're some of the best-known stories in all of sacred scripture. And many of you have seen them. My first exposure, not being raised in the church, was Charlton Heston, and it was the movie. And as a child who did not know Christ, I was amazed by these stories. They are here because they are true. It makes Exodus a real page-turner for those of you who like a good story. You got a baby in a basket. You got a burning bush. You got plagues that come down upon Pharaoh and Egypt. You have the angel of death. You have the crossing of the Red Sea. You have manna in the wilderness. You have water coming from a rock and thunder and lightning pouring down on Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments, the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. You have the golden calf. You have the construction of the tabernacle and God dwelling with his people. It is an extraordinary read. Once heard, most of these stories are rarely forgotten. Not only because they are epic in nature, but I would argue more importantly because they're authentic. They're real stories. A real God engaging a real people in a real place and time. And the stories that we will see over the next several weeks in Exodus are part of God's larger story. His creation, fall, redemption, restoration story. And that's what makes him so beautiful because we are part of that story. When we go through this book, you're not going to be seeing a people that are detached from us, but a God who's been working with his people as he works with us today. Exodus is the second book in the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In the Hebrew, Exodus actually begins with the word and. It's not in most of your translations, but it would read, Exodus 1.1, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. And so as book number two in the Pentateuch, it comes right off of Genesis chapter 50 and continues the story. And it begins to show us all the promises that God revealed to Abraham and his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, are now beginning to be fulfilled in this book. And so it is a glorious early consummation of God's fidelity to his people. And not only to Abraham, and his descendants, but we will see ultimately to all of his people throughout all human history, his church. And so these promises are going to be rich for us, and we're going to sit on them, and we're going to feast on them, and by God's grace, you'll be filled with them. For the Jews of the Old Testament, Exodus was their defining moment. It defined them as a people, a people rescued by God out of slavery to be made into his treasured possession. And for Christians, the Exodus is a clear picture of the gospel of salvation in the Old Testament. You don't have to get far to see God doing a great work here, saving a nation for his own glory. One commentator rightly said, and I agree, in some ways the whole Bible is an extended interpretation of the Exodus. I believe that to be true. God saving his people through judgment and bringing them into a restored relationship with him and into a restored land that he would dwell in as well. So I I pray that by God's grace, as we look at this epic book, that our lives in Christ will also be transformed by the gospel as we see God delivering us out of the slavery of our own sins into a right relationship with him through Christ and ultimately into that place where we will dwell with him forever and ever.
I'm, I am super excited to preach this. And so I've had to tell myself all week, settle down, settle down. My poor family's heard the preaching of Exodus since Monday, <laughs> so um, hopefully they haven't been uh, overtaken by it. Three things I want to show you, the journeys that we're going to be on to establish the context. In order to understand Exodus, we've got to know how they got in Egypt. How did God's people end up in slavery? And so we've got to establish a, a context here before we dive too deeply. And I want to look at three things, these three journeys, one from Eden to Abraham, from Abraham to Egypt, and from Egypt to Christ. And if we can get that down today... I think we'll be in a good position to continue on in this book. From Eden to Abraham, from Abraham to Egypt, and from Egypt to Christ. Now, I'm going to ask you that by God's grace through the Spirit, you will be attentive to this. There's a lot of biblical theology in here, which means we're going to try to paint a really big story, because it is a big story. But you're part of this story. So for the next 45 minutes or so, listen with all your might. Ask God to give you ears to hear supernaturally and spiritually that you might not just be a listener, but someone who's changed by it. Amen? All right. Point number one, from Eden to Abraham. From Eden to Abraham. Exodus means exit or departure. The first time we find the word in the Hebrew is in Exodus 19, verse 1, where God gathered the people at Mount Sinai in verse 1. And said, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of, literally exited, the land of Egypt. After 430 years in slavery, under the Egyptian king Pharaoh, God delivers his people out of Egypt. Some debate on the time I've landed on the 15th century. 1445 years, 1445 years before Jesus Christ. And it's this epic story of God rescuing his people through judgment. And we see this movement, this promise that was made to Abraham long before coming to fruition and the necessity of an actual salvation. From the very beginning in Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth as this glorious canvas to display his glory. You know that, right? When you gaze upon the mountains or you look upon the stars and you are rightly overwhelmed with God's majesty, it is for his glory ultimately, for your pleasure indeed, and certainly to worship him rightly. But he did that. He created the heavens and the earth to display his glory. And then on day number six, you know the pinnacle of his creation is man. And that may be hard for us to hear when we see what man has done to himself and to God's creation. But before the fall... Those created in his image, male and female, were made by God to fulfill an amazing purpose. Fundamentally, Adam and Eve were to be, Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, when we hear that, we usually think procreation. Moms and dads get married and have babies, and that's not wrong, but that's not the purpose of that verse. God intended from the beginning to make Creatures, male and female, in his image to magnify his glory. Our ultimate purpose is that end. It always has been. That we might, as God's creatures, multiply throughout the entire earth and in so doing, display God's glory for all of creation. Making the entire planet, not just the Garden of Eden, a place where God would say to the world, See my glory, 
through these, through man and through woman. Now, most of you know that the story of God's plan to magnify his glory through man, through the Adam and Eve, went bad in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan, in the form of a certain serpent, deceives Adam and Eve by convincing them to do what? To eat from the one tree in the garden God said, do not eat from. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2.17. Believing that if they eat from this tree, they would become like God. That was the lie that Satan told them. Adam and Eve disobeyed God in this single act. It changed everything. It changed mankind and it changed God's sinless creation. By Adam and Eve listening to Satan instead of listening to God, they changed their allegiance from their creator, their king, their father, and their husband to a fallen angel. And instead of becoming like God, as Satan had promised, they became like Satan, sinners through and through in rebellion against their true king and his sinless kingdom. As God's representatives on earth, instead of being fruitful and multiplying as they had been commissioned to do, spreading throughout the earth and magnifying God's glory, those in his image, they became like Satan and instead ushered in death. Physical death, spiritual death, emotional death, relational death, and they brought that into God's perfect creation. And this, my beloved, is how slavery came in. When we talk about the Israelites in slavery in Egypt, it started in Genesis chapter 3. It started in the garden. All slavery came in through the sin of Adam and Eve. Paul made this clear in Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So ever since the fall, slavery has been the condition of the human heart. And we see it manifest in all different ways. Physical slavery, as we see here in Exodus 1, still exists all around the world today. You know this. Relational slavery that we see in abusive marriages, in abusive parenting. Emotional slavery as people battle daily with anxiety and depression and anger. Chemical slavery to drugs and alcohol, sexual slavery as men and women find themselves addicted to porn. My beloved, the human heart, since Genesis 3, is a slavery-producing factory. Every sin that you submit to enslaves you in some way, shape, or form. You know that. Every single sin, no matter how big or small you think it is in your mind, that sin enslaves you. I remember counseling a young man, a non-believer, sometime back who was addicted to pornography, he said to me in tears, I, I want to stop, but I have a greater desire to not stop. And so he did not, and that's the heart of the problem. Apart from a greater power overcoming the sinful desires of our own hearts, we cannot escape sin. It is inescapable apart from being set free. And so instead of spreading God's glory as you were created... In the image of God, male and female, it's what makes you so extraordinary. You know that. When you look at a human being in comparison to the galaxies or, or the sea or the mountains, you are extraordinary by comparison because you were created in the image of God. But as a result of sin, instead of spreading God's glory, his goodness and his love and his sacrifice and his service, instead of us spreading that all over the earth, what have we done as descendants of Adam and Eve and our sin, dead in our sins, we have spread sin and death. 
And therefore, ever since Genesis chapter 3, there's been a need for a Savior to come and set us free. We're just as bound as the Israelites were in Egypt. As sin continued to abound, you know that the world became increasingly more wicked. We're told in Genesis chapter 6 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's an amazing statement. Every intention of every thought was only evil. And then the Lord said he regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. So God exercises a reboot, right? He brings the flood. He cleanses the earth. He destroys all living creatures except for Noah and his family. He puts them on an ark and he saves them through judgment. Same story theme that we'll see all the way through. Once the floods of judgment subside, God gave Noah and his family the exact same commission that he had given Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. He says to Noah, Genesis 9 verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The purpose remains the same. Mankind is to multiply and fill the earth with God's glory. The only problem is that after the flood, Noah and his children, their hearts remained the same. They were still dead. The earth had been cleansed, but not the heart of man. So instead of spreading the goodness and the majesty of God, again, Noah and his descendants, they spread sin and death. And so in order for God to accomplish the purpose he established for himself, the glory he wanted for himself, through mankind, through Adam and Eve, and those created in his image, God would have to intervene himself. He would have to come in and and do something to change the heart of man. He could not continue to just wipe the earth clean without changing man. As I drove in this morning to church, we saw a rainbow, and I thought, what a glorious promise. What a glorious promise. But my heart remains unchanged. Point number two, from Abraham to Egypt, I hope you're still with me. To accomplish this great work that God had purposed, to have mankind created in his image, magnify his glory, to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth, God had to come in and make changes upon a human heart. In Genesis chapter 12, God chooses Abraham. You say, why Abraham? Was he a holy man? No. Was he a God worshiper? No. Did he come from a holy family? No. Did he live amongst a holy people? No. So why Abraham? Because God so decreed. Why you? God so decreed if you are in Christ. Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, a pagan worshiper in the land of Ur, and his descendants, God decrees to set apart, to make a people for his own glory. Genesis chapter 12, The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Then he says in verse 3 of Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you, and, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God sets forth these extraordinary promises. He says to Abraham, I'm going to grant you citizenship in a land that is not your own that I will handpick for you. He says to Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants into a great nation, not a great family or not a big family, but a nation. 
He says, I'm going to make sure that your name, your lineage lasts forever. And then he says, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you, through your offspring. All the nations will be blessed. These are extraordinary promises that God is making to a man who at this point in time would have heard these promises and thought them ridiculous. And they were. He is one man, not a nation. He didn't even have any children. He was old. He was soon to become a sojourner called out of Ur and into Palestine, the to-be-promised land. But most importantly, you know this, his wife Sarah was barren. They had no children and they could not have any children. That is until God supernaturally blesses Sarah's womb with the son of promise Isaac at the age of 90. Yeah, I know, ladies, you should smile at that. Years later, after God led Abraham out of the land of Ur and into the promised land, Palestine, Abraham provides and proves himself faithful to God in Genesis 22 by revealing his willingness to sacrifice the son of promise, Isaac, per the Lord's request. The story is too much for us to go into, but you know that moments before the sacrifice, Abraham, God stops Abraham's hand and provides a ram as a substitute instead of his son, that blood might be spilled and righteousness might prevail through a substitute. And then he says this to Abraham, listen, Genesis 22, 16 and following, God says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so Abraham becomes the father of the faithful, not because he was righteous in his own right, but because he trusted God to provide. God said to Abraham, go up to the mountain and sacrifice your son. And Abraham was just about to do it, and God stopped him, provided a sacrifice as a substitute, and then made Abraham the father of the faithful because he simply trusted. He promised that through Abraham, through his offspring singular, that the Savior would come. That is Jesus Christ. That is Jesus Christ. The Savior would come and he would overcome the enemies of Satan, sin, and death. The curse of Genesis 3 would be overcome by the offspring of Abraham. And through this offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed with the gospel of grace. Paul said in Galatians 3.16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, referring to one who is Christ. And if you are Christ and you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In other words, through this promise made to Abraham, God's saying, I'm going to send a Savior to the world, not just Israel, so that all who repent and believe, all who put their faith in me, just like Father Abraham, will be saved. The apostle elaborated on this beautifully in Romans 4 when he said, For the promise to Abraham... And his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. By grace, through faith, in the seed of Abraham, in the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, God offers life to all who repent and believe. 
By faith, God blessed Abraham with Isaac. By faith, God blessed Isaac with his son of promise, Jacob. And by faith, God blessed Jacob. He changed his name to Israel with the 12 sons in our passage. Look at verse 2. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And of course, Joseph. And as we read through Genesis and the story of Jacob and his family, we don't see this righteous family. We don't see this holy family that is going to be this, these representatives for God on earth, bringing him glory. Instead, we see a family just like us, still sinners with sinful hearts, doing horrible things. In Genesis chapter 37, for example, we find Joseph, who was Jacob's favorite son, wearing his technicolor jacket, become the victim of his brother's jealous rage. While the brothers were out pasturing their father's flocks at Shechem, the brothers see Joseph, Joseph coming from afar, and at first they think, we're going to kill him. This was the hatred in their hearts. This was the sin in their hearts. But then they reconsider and they decide, let's sell him into slavery instead. We learn later that what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And it was God's divine plan in providence that Joseph would go from being a slave in Egypt to the prince of Egypt, second in command only to Pharaoh. And after a famine would strike through the wisdom that Joseph exercised, he was able to save many Egyptians and his own family. God would work to bring Jacob and the 11 children and their families into Egypt under the care of Joseph, sparing their lives from the famine and settling them in the land of Goshen near the Nile Delta. Seventy people in all. But this family chosen by God to be his new family, to be his new representatives, were anything but a model family. Abraham and Isaac, we know them to be sinners as well. Both Abraham and Isaac, on more than one occasion, in the face of a potential harm, said their wives were their sisters to spare themselves and put their wives in harm's way. Jacob, as you know, which means deceiver, betrayed his brother Esau by tricking him out of his birthright and the blessing of Isaac. Like father, like sons, the brothers band together and they sell Joseph into Egypt that he may no longer receive the blessings of, of Jacob. Judah, probably in one of the most despicable acts of all, Judah, through whom the Savior would come, had sex with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the sons of Jacob were all sinners, just like us, and therefore they were all subject to death, just like us. As the obituary reads, look at Exodus 1, verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation, they died because the wages of sin is always death. But God had chosen to bless Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, not because of their goodness or their fidelity as a family, but because it was pleasing to him. God's new family that would become a new nation to glorify his name was anything but holy, but Jacob and his children, now in Egypt, small in numbers, strangers in a foreign land, probably more separated from the promise of God made to Abraham than they ever had been, 
they had the living God on their side. They had the living God who had promised to bless them and all the nations through them. This living God who has the power to change the sinful heart. In the Gospel of Mark, most of you probably know this story as well. A, a rich young ruler came to Jesus inquiring about the kingdom of heaven. We're told in Mark 10 that he ran up and he knelt before Jesus and he asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then Jesus said to him, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And then the man said to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And then Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And he said to him, You lack one thing. Now listen. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth, wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were exceedingly astonished, and they said to Jesus, Then who then can be saved? Now listen with all your might. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible. Jacob and his 12 sons had the creator of the universe who had promised for his name's sake, for his own glory, that he would bless Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the children of Jacob. This is what they had on their side. Not their holiness, not their own righteousness, certainly not their good works or their religion. They had God who was faithful to the promise to make the sinful children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into a, a holy people into a mighty nation that would bless all the nations of the earth through a Savior. In other words, really early in the storyline, we understand that the righteousness that we have and that we need to come before God comes from God. He imputes that to us freely through the Savior. Otherwise, there is no salvation, not for anyone. This God of the everlasting covenant through Jacob's line, small in a foreign land, would put all their faith and all their hope in God's faithfulness to the promise. For His glory, God would make a people. My right, last point, I pray you're still with me. From Egypt to Christ. In Genesis chapter 15, right before the Lord made His everlasting covenant with Abraham, He said this. Know for certain, Genesis 15, 13, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. Same word for slaves. And they'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring, drug, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. In other words, it was God's plan all along from the very beginning to have his people sold into slavery in Egypt, that he might display his majesty and his power and his glory by saving his people out of judgment, that he might display for the world the incredible gospel of grace, that as he rightly judges as a holy God, a rebellious people, he would simultaneously save many, displaying his justice 
and his salvation for centuries to come. Even in our pagan culture, my beloved, people know about the stories of Exodus. They still hear about these great works of this God doing amazing things to redeem his people out of slavery. But in order to accomplish this great work of salvation, God had to first transform a family of Jacob, 70 in all, in Egypt, into a nation. At the end of 430 years of slavery, we're told in verse 7, look at verse 7 with me, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And so God, by his grace, for his glory, fulfills one of the primary promises made to Abraham in Genesis, taking this ragtag family of 70 into a nation of tens of thousands. So powerful were they? We're told in verse 9, and we'll look at this next week, that the people of Israel, Pharaoh said, are too many and too mighty for us. The fulfillment of this Abrahamic promise to make the descendants of Abraham into a great nation cannot, listen, it cannot be undervalued. In Genesis chapter 1, God commanded Adam and Eve to what? Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth with God's glory. They failed, and it resulted in the coming of the cataclysmic flood and decreation. In Genesis chapter 9, Noah said to his descendants the same command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They too failed, and it brought the curse of Babel, the dispersing of the people, and the confusion of language. So God finally comes along to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, and says, I will make Abraham into a great nation. I will intercede. I will intervene. And when you turn the pages from Genesis chapter 50 to Exodus chapter 1, 430 years had passed, and boom, you have a nation, a mighty nation made by God. By God's power, God begins to reclaim his fallen creation by making a new nation, a new people for himself. A people, my beloved, who would fulfill the original creation ordinance that God gave to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and spread the earth with his glory. The same ordinance stands today, you know that. The same creation ordinance given to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1 the same ordinance given to Noah in Genesis chapter 9, the same ordinance given multiple times to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, stands today. We, God's people, are to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth for what purpose? That he might be glorified through those created in his image. Your calling is extraordinary. Your calling as a man or a woman created in the image of God is nothing short of extraordinary. God made you for the distinct purpose of living for his glory. That as you go through your days and your weeks and your years, people see you and they glorify God. What a calling. The problem is sin is still an issue. Right? Nothing's changed from Genesis chapter 3. The human heart is still sinful, deep, abiding, pervasive sin in each and every one of us that prevents us from receiving the glory of God as those created in his image and then giving that glory to others. We're stymied in that. We know 
all of us, deep down, that we were created to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and yet we fall short, do we not? We know in our heart of hearts that we are to love others as God loves us, and yet we fall woefully short. We know that our primary disposition as those created in the image of God is to be other-centered, outward orientation, and yet we know that we're mostly turned in on ourselves. So much self-glorification, self-serving, self-affirming. We are like the Israelites enslaved in Egypt, but we are not enslaved under the chains of Pharaoh. We're enslaved under the chains of our own sins. We are unable to be fruitful and multiply the goodness of God unless God does what he did for his people in Egypt. He sent Moses to set them free. Unless God sends a Savior to set us free from our sin-captivating hearts, we will remain bound and unable to fill this great commission to bring Him glory in our lives. But, as Jesus said to the disciples in Mark chapter 10, what is impossible for us, that is overcoming our enslavement to our sin nature, is not impossible for God. What we cannot do on our own, God can do through Christ. He can He is, and He will. He had to send a Savior to set us free that we might glorify Him as those created in His image. My beloved, the central theme of Exodus and the reason that I titled the entire series Saved for the Glory of God is the central theme of your life. You are saved for the glorification of God. God the Father, in order to bring Himself glory, had to make a people, a new people, a new creation, a new nation that would be fruitful and multiply and cover the earth with his glory. And he had to do it by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be the firstborn of this new creation. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus came to do just that, to be the first man of this glorious new nation. He sent Christ to free us from the bondage of our own sin and to make us into a people, into a holy nation. First Peter said it, Peter said it well, First Peter 2.9, a chosen race, listen saints, this is you, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. That's Genesis chapter 1. That's Genesis chapter 9. That's the commission that we have been given as those created in his image to live lives in such a way that we display the glory of God. We'll see over the next several weeks how God sent Moses to the enslaved Israelites in Egypt He sent them not only to set them free from the chains of Pharaoh and to bring them into the promised land that he had made to Abraham, but to enter into a covenant relationship with God that we might know God and be known by God. Out of the new covenant, God sends a greater Moses, Jesus Christ, not only to Israel, but to all the nations, that through the sacrifice on the cross, Jesus Christ became enslaved in our place for our sins And therefore, God is able to grant to us forgiveness. He's able to grant it to all who repent and believe because Christ becomes the ram in the thicket. Christ becomes the substitute that dies instead of you. 
Christ comes to set us free, not from the chains of Pharaoh, but from a much greater enemy, and that is the sin in your own heart. Through Christ, God is able to redeem us into a God-glorifying community. Out of our submission to Satan and sin and into the family of light and love and eternal light. Christ is that great Savior of his people. In Luke chapter 4, just after Jesus had been tempted in the desert, he's in Nazareth, Nazareth. And as was custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. We're told that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and that Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Jesus speaking, listen. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's us in sin. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus claimed that power because it was given to him by God. And through his broken body and his spilled blood, God the Father established a new covenant with his people. Not a covenant of law, that we will see come down on Mount Sinai, but a covenant of glorious grace, a covenant of grace that secures the promise of eternal life for all who believe, like Father Abraham, the father of faith, a covenant of grace established in the life, death, and resurrection of the greater Moses, Jesus Christ, a covenant of grace that has the power to bring you into a life-giving all-consuming, joy-filled relationship with God the Father through Jesus. A relationship with God as it was and even better than before the fall, before sin entered in Genesis 3. A relationship with God not defined by rebellion and sin as it is apart from Christ, but by submission and grace. A relationship that puts God's people back on track, heading in the direction that we were created to head, to be fruitful and multiply and do what? Fill the earth with God's glory. In Acts chapter 1, after our Lord was resurrected, but before he ascended into heaven, the disciples asked him a most curious question. They said, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom? Are you going to come back now? Are you going to make all things new? Are you going to judge and are you going to save? Is now that time? Jesus had a most curious answer. Listen. He said to his disciples, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then he says this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's the creation ordinance, my beloved. That's the creation ordinance. They want to know, Lord, when are you going to come back and make things right? He says, I'm going to come back. I will judge living in the dead, and my kingdom will have no end. But until then, you must know what you are to do. Be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth with my Father's glory. The great commission that God gives us through Christ is the great commission that was given to Adam and Eve in the very beginning. We are to take this great news and transformative power of God, saving people out of judgment into fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're to take that to the ends of the earth. 
being fruitful and multiplying by making disciples. Disciples who will do what? They will display the grace of God and the love of God. They will show sinners the path to salvation through the cross. They will display service. They will sacrifice in humility to put others above themselves that they might bring God glory in their own lives. All of Exodus, the entire book, paints this glorious forward picture of a new canvas that's being painted even this hour. It's being painted by God. It's in a new canvas of a new creation in a new heaven and a new earth. It is a place, as we will see, where sin and death are no more. It is a place where Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, is actually glorified perfectly by his people. We get a a picture of this. John gives us a glimpse in Revelation 7. Listen to this. John says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Those are all that have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, listen, salvation belongs to our God who sits in the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Christ calls us out of the darkness. He calls us out of the slavery we inflict upon ourselves. He calls us into freedom, my beloved. You cannot be bound in Christ other than to Christ. He calls us to enter into an intimate covenant relationship with Him. He sustains us by His grace in this desert journey as we sojourn here on earth until we make it home. He delivers us safely. He will from that day of judgment and into that promised land that the Bible says flows with milk and honey. He will secure a place for us that place where God will tabernacle. He will dwell with us. We will be his people, and he will be our God for all eternity. This picture we get takes the Garden of Eden, and it says this is to be the entire earth. All of the earth will be God's Garden of Eden, and all mankind that has been saved by grace will worship Him. We will fulfill the ordinance, subduing the earth with the glory of God. Listen, perfectly reflecting, perfectly radiating in our sinless states the glory and magnificence and beauty of God. All of this and so much more is revealed in Exodus. For our encouragement for our edification, and I pray for our great joy that you might be filled with a sense of hope as you see that God has, by grace through faith, called you out of slavery and made you a treasured possession and promises to bring you into that promised land where he will dwell with you forever.
I want to read to you again the passage from the call to worship, then I'll close in prayer. From Exodus chapter 6, God's commandment for Moses to tell the people, Say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. My beloved, that's your promise in Christ. That's your promise in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would forgive us for reading these stories in Exodus so long without reading the gospel in, for not seeing ourselves as those being rescued by Jesus out of the slavery of our own sin, blessed with the covenant promise that you would be our God with the great hope, Lord, that one day we too will enter the promised land to be with you, to worship you, and to know you forever. I ask, Heavenly Father, that you be gracious with our church these next several weeks as we endeavor to look at this most extraordinary book. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see that these epic stories are more than just stories. It's you, the real God, engaging your people that we might know you. Help us to see, Father, the authenticity of these told stories by Moses so long ago and their direct application to us in our walk with Christ. Help us to see, Father, clearly even this day how you have rescued us through Christ out of our own slavery. Help us to see how you have set us free that we might worship and love you in a covenant of grace. And keep before us, I pray, Lord, that, that hope that we have that you will walk with us through this sojourn, through these desert years, and you will deliver us into the promised land, not because of who we are, but because of who you are, because you are faithful. I ask that you would show that to us, Lord that we might be these people that you've commissioned us to be from the very beginning, people who are fruitful and multiply your glory throughout this earth. Start in our lives, Father. Start in our families. Start here in Cambrian Park. But by all means, magnify yourself, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.